0: Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger.
1: Welcome to episode 34 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Dr. Moira Younger. Hello, everyone. Hi, Dave. So this month, we're going to talk about measuring sleepiness. And it is a bit self-indulgent for me because this is something I really struggle with in clinical practice. And I'm going to take the opportunity to get the insights from Assistant Professor David Plant, who's really leading world research in this area, looking at can you differentiate different types of sleepiness by doing different measurements how do you actually measure sleepiness? How do you sort of utilise that information in clinical practice? So I'll try and tease David out about that and yeah. answer my own question. <laughs> <laughs> you...
2: Great. So what's topical this month regarding sleep?
1: In our practice and in a couple of centres around Australia, we're beginning to gear up for a clinical trial of a once nightly formulation of sodium oxybate as a treatment for narcolepsy. Mm. So for me, that's really exciting. So mm. Yes, I have treatments available for narcolepsy, but unfortunately, a lot of them are only partially effective for people. Um, People are still left with significant symptoms or they can't tolerate them because of side effects. We have some experience with a sodium oxybate formulation that's actually been a great rescue medication for a number of people, but it's expensive and it's not registered in Australia. So to have a clinical trial of potentially a once-nightly formulation, yeah, something I'm really excited about. And Narcolepsy Support Australia is hosting an event in Sydney on October 13th where Julie Flygear from Los Angeles and Project Sleep is going to come to Australia and share her experience with narcolepsy. And Julie's awesome. She's just a great person to follow. If you want to understand narcolepsy, she's very active on social media and a great positive advocate, not just for narcolepsy, actually, but for sleep problems in general.
2: Yeah, she is, isn't she? Great. Excellent.
1: And then also in Australia, there's Idiopathic Hypersomnia Awareness Week. So that's from the 3rd to the 9th of September. So look out for that. And there's lots of information on the website for hypersomnolence Australia about idiopathic hypersomnia. So this month's topic is measuring sleepiness. So why is that important? Well, Part of the reason it's important is sleepiness is incredibly common. So if you survey the general population and you ask people, are you sleepy? At least a third of people will report being sleepy. Mm. And do your own survey amongst your family or your workplace. You know, you start saying, I'm sleepy. Everyone goes, yeah, I'm sleepy too. And then it becomes a who's, you know, who's sleepier <laughs> yeah. rather than yeah. the busy off. You know, I'm busier than you. It's a bit yeah. of a sleepiness off. I'm more tired than, yeah. than you are or more sleepy. than than you are. I think
2: mostly we're focusing often too on people not sleeping enough rather than this group of people that perhaps are sleeping too much or needing
1: a lot of sleep and having non-restorative sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And it is then a tricky area because in clinical practice, one of the questions that comes up for me is how sleepy is too sleepy? Mm. What's outside the normal range? Yeah. So at least a third of the population is reporting feeling sleepy. Mm. When's it abnormal? When do we think of it as a medical disorder and therefore think about treating it? Yeah. versus when do we think of it as just a social disorder or well, right, partic- lifestyle? Thing?
2: Yeah, particularly if they are sleep-deprived, and particularly if it's coming in the afternoon, and all of us have a, a, a dip in our circadian rhythms and do need to have a sleep. Most people, the general population wouldn't know that that's considered normal. People think you know, that, that they're sleepy, they're abnormally sleepy.
1: Yeah. One of the other things I struggle with is all sleepiness the same. So with someone who's voluntarily sleep-deprived, choosing not to sleep mm. and feeling sleepy. Mm. Is that the same as someone who's got a neurological condition mm. like an orexin deficiency and yeah. narcolepsy type 1 and yeah. is feeling sleepy versus someone who's got depression and it's feeling sleepy.
2: Are you going to tell me about the end of this podcast? We'll know. Is Because is anyone looking at that? Is it, is it is something that we...
1: Funnily yeah? enough, that's one of David Plant's ah, particular research interests, which is why I was yeah. really keen to interview yeah, him for this episode. Yeah. And that's one of the questions I'll I'll put mm. to him is, yeah, can we differentiate these different mm. types of sleepiness? So let's get into it and see what David's got to say. So David's a clinician scientist from the University of Wisconsin in Madison and has a particular interest in disorders of excessive daytime sleepiness and measuring these and seeing if we can differentiate these different types of sleepiness. So what are some of the current clinical tools available for measuring hypersomnolence?
0: In clinical practice, we basically have three major tools, well, three or four major tools that we can use to try to assess someone's complaints of hypersomnolence. So One of them that I think is often overlooked is actigraphy. And I think actigraphy is absolutely important because it's really the only means that we have right now of quantifying longitudinal sleep-wake patterns in people. So Mm -hmm. when we bring people into the lab for our other sort of objective measurements, it's just a snapshot. So we have to be aware of, you know, what's actually happening to people outside of the lab because that can have pretty profound impact on the readings that we get. Uh, of tests when we do bring them in the lab. And also it may give us a little bit more uh, hint about what may be going on with the person. So a great example is people who have a circadian rhythm disorder. Because of that, they're sort of functionally sleep deprived during the week, but then on the weekends, they may sleep long amounts of time. Or when they come into the sleep lab, they may sleep long amounts of time if you let them, but they may not have a true disorder of central hypersomnia. So actigraphy is a great way to, to at least estimate longitudinal duration of sleep over a sort of a, a period of time. Yeah. And then in the lab, you know, we've got different tests. We've got the classic polysomnogram, which tells you a lot about sort of sleep fragmenting disorders, et cetera. But to try to understand if someone's got excessive sleep duration, it does have to be modified to let people sleep. And so one of the things that our lab frequently and typically does in patients who we suspect may have for example, idiopathic hypersomnia, or, or they have a complaint of hypersomnia, and so we don't suspect they have, say, sleep disorder breathing or something like that, is we'll let people sleep ad libitum, And what I mean by that is our lab doesn't necessarily set a prescribed wake time. So you can objectively record sleep duration and see how long someone will sleep. And it does take some flexibility uh, among daytime technicians and patients among the staff, but can actually give you a lot of really uh, useful information that I think we often miss when we kind of routinely wake people up uh, in the morning. And then other tests that we have are so the MSLT, which is our you know gold standard measure of ob- objectively measured sleep propensity. And we use that very frequently. That's probably the most common sort of a standard assessment that we're doing for people that we suspect has a central nervous system hypersomnia, or at least if we're trying to rule in or out, narcolepsy, for example. But it's it's an imperfect test, to say the least. But it does have a very important sort of uh, area in, in, in clinical practice. And then I think the other test that we can use clinically is the maintenance of wakefulness test, or MWT. And my gut tells me that we're probably using the MWT less than we probably could. Mm-hmm. Part of that, at least in the United States, is driven by, you know, one- reimbursement, but two, it's not a diagnostic test per se. So in the MSLT, we rely on it heavily to make a diagnosis of narcolepsy or or even idiopathic hypersomnia, whereas the MWT gives us a sense of how sleepy someone may be, but it's not a diagnostic tool in the same kind of sense. It's not written in any of the diagnostic criteria. So I think we tend to use it very very infrequently.
1: So there's some of the objective measures if we're trying to measure hypersomnolence. What about some simple subjective tools that people can use in the clinic?
0: Sure. Well, there's a number of relatively straightforward objective tools that can be used. They vary a little bit in terms of what they're quantifying and also the duration over which they're asking people about. So probably the most common and most familiar tool is actually was developed in Melbourne and that, uh, by Murray-Johnson. That's the Epworth word sleepiness scale. It's a very straightforward scale that asks people to rate how likely they are to doze off in various real or imagined situations. There's eight of them, and people score each item from zero to three. And then basically, it's a very simple scale to, to sum. And once you start getting to scores of more than 10... That's starting to suggest uh, clinically significant daytime sleepiness. So that's an excellent scale. It's used all the time clinically in the United States and I'd I'd imagine elsewhere. The Epworth is not a perfect scale. And it it doesn't, like, for example, it measures over a a window of time. There are a couple of subjective scales that are usually used more in research to try to quantify how sleepy someone is at that moment in time. So there's the Karolinskis sleepiness scale and the Stanford sleepiness scale which are very similar in that respect, they're asking the the person to rate how sleepy they are at that moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there are other scales that are either targeted towards a specific symptom or area of of sleepiness uh, or result of sleepiness, or you may take a more broad stance of hypersomnia. What I mean by that is, their scales, uh, the Functional Outcomes of Sleep Questionnaire, or FOSQ, is a very widely utilized scale that measures sort of the impact of daytime sleepiness on people's lives. And there's sort of an extended version and then a, sh- a shorter version as well that's available. There are also uh, questionnaires that are more... Symptom-specific. So, a great example is there's a sleep inertia questionnaire that's been developed by Alison Harvey and her group at Berkeley that asks questions more specifically about sleep inertia specifically. So, that's re- referring to the, the the phenomenon that people with hypersomnolence often have of you know extreme difficulty getting out of bed in the morning and feeling very groggy or even hungover or drunk mm-hmm. uh, when they wake up, very hard to sort of become, become fully awake. So, there are questionnaires for that. Uh, I have a colleague. Kate Kaplan is working on validating something called the Hypersomnia Severity Index, which is a little bit akin to the Insomnia Severity Index. This is a measure that asks about different aspects of hypersomnia, so daytime sleepiness, excessive sleep duration, sleep inertia, et cetera, and then also its functional impact. So that's something that we're working on as a field and trying to develop. So there's a whole host of different sort of options out there, but I I would agree with you that the F-Worth is definitely the most commonly used scale right now.
1: Yeah, I like the sound of the hypersomnolence severity index. So that'd be a really useful clinical tool, I think. Yeah, more
0: more on that to come. (laughs) Great. Well,
1: I look forward to that. So then we've got these tools, the objective tools and the subjective tools. One of the things Mm -hmm. I really struggle with in clinical practice is then differentiating different causes of sleepiness. So in the work you've done using these tools, such as MSLT, have you been able to show any differences in the characteristics of these test results with different causes of sleepiness?
0: Well, so I think that one of the things that we've noticed as we've sort of done more and more research in clinical populations, specifically using the MSLT and then what I'd call ancillary measures of sleepiness is that we're replicating very similar things that we've actually seen a lot of times in the literature, which is the following. So one, the multiple sleep latency test results weakly correlate, if at all, with sort of other objective measures of sleepiness. They tend to have some kind of a significant relationship, but it's usually very, very modest. At all in terms of how the, the variance of one explains the variant explains the other. The MSLT doesn't capture a lot of people who may have other specific impairments. And the other thing that we've seen, which I again I think has been described in the literature previously, it, it still hasn't really changed clinical practices. Within individuals, people can often be discordant for these values. Mm-hmm. So in other words, someone may have a completely normal MSLT, completely normal, but have be very, very impaired if you were to even measure them with the MWT. That was described a long time ago in a paper, I think, in 1992. But even if we use things like the psychomotor vigilance task, which is a neurobehavioral measure of alertness, or infrared pupillometry that measures kind of pupillary undulation uh, and darkness, which are both other measures or ancillary measures of, of different aspects or facets of daytime sleepiness, we find that some individuals may be quite abnormal on one metric, one or even two metrics, but then completely normal on the others. So these things are relatively independent from one another. And I would argue that ideally in the future, we'd do a better job of what I'd call phenotyping people. So understanding sort of the nature of their sleepiness beyond just relying on the MSLT as, as a standard measure for, for assessing sleepiness.
1: Yeah, that's a really helpful tip because the MSLT is pretty non-specific, and it does make it hard to then you know, give us that information. Okay, what's underpinning? the sleepiness. There's an area of research for you. Give us a look at what's coming ahead. What sort of things are you looking at and how might you start to tease this apart?
0: One of the things we're trying to do is to apply these different measures of sleepiness to specific populations that have proven to be somewhat challenging to identify excessive sleepiness in objectively. So a great example of that is in depression. Mm -hmm. We've known for a long time that sleepiness is really common in depression, and depression is one of the most common reasons for people to complain about sleepiness. But when we bring people into the sleep lab and we do multiple sleep latency tests on these individuals, they tend to have relatively, quote-unquote, normal values. Now, that isn't to say that someone with depression isn't going to have an abnormal MSLT. The chances are about one in four that they are going to have an abnormal MSLT. But the problem is that's about the same as the general population. So the MSLT has very poor normative data in terms of the mean and standard deviation. So a lot of people in the population, if you just pull people off the street, will have an abnormal MSLT. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I'd like to do is start to use some of these ancillary measures of sleepiness in people with depression to see if we can do a better job of I- objectively identifying their their sleepiness. And then from there, beyond just being able to identify people objectively as being sleepy who have depression, is then trying to map specifically which uh, objective measure of sleepiness, how that maps on a different sort of neurophysiologic changes in the brain. So there's probably lots of reasons for people to be Sleepy, right? Our ability to stay awake is a pretty complex phenomenon. Generally, we boil it down into, you know, it's not—it's a, a balance of sort of the arousal mechanisms in the brain and sort of and dampening down or sleep promoting mechanisms. And there's something sort of some imbalance there between them, but it could happen in theory in lots of different parts of the brain. And alluding to one of the questions you had asked before is, have we kind of mapped some of these specific measures of daytime sleepiness to specific brain functions? Unfortunately, the answer is for the large part, no. We have some ideas about what changes in the PBT or psychomotor vigilance task can represent and the systems that may be involved there. They can involve motor systems, attentional systems, and even in some components of the PBT, the default mode network. Infrared pupillometry, we think, tends to be a reflection of noradrenergic tone in a locus aurelius because that's integrally involved in sort of the circuit that's involved in pupillary constriction and dilation. So we at least have some sense of some of the nuclei involved or related to that particular measure, but it's relatively non specific. And mm-hmm. so besides just being able to identify that fact that someone does have pathology objectively or is sleepy objectively. The next step that we also want to do is try to then map those objective findings onto specific neurophysiologic changes, because that will tell us a lot about what's happening in the brain and then allow us to maybe tailor treatments a little bit more specifically uh, moving forward. And that would apply for depression it would also apply for other disorders of hypersomnolence that I study and care about. So things like idiopathic hypersomnia, for which, again, it, like depression, is probably a heterogeneous disorder, and like depression, not everyone with idiopathic hypersomnia will even have an M- an abnormal MSLT. So clearly, some of those folks are going to be a little bit different than than other folks. And trying to figure out what's going on, I think, will be very, very important to to develop effective strategies for for their management over time.
1: Yeah. Good luck with your research. I'm really looking forward to getting more tools that we can use in the clinic. Well, thank you.
2: Great work, Dave. Another good interview. What are your take-home messages or the standouts from that interview?
1: So again, nice to hear that David struggles with this in the same way that I do, is differentiating these different types of sleepiness. And some of his work gives us some insights of things we can try and think about that may help us to differentiate sort of who's sleepy versus not sleepy and what may be a particular cause of sleepiness. But still, We don't have the perfect answer, Mm. unfortunately. So it hasn't solved my clinical, (laughs) clinical problem. Not yet. Not yet. And it is something that's really a problem in clinical practice. So some of the people we get sent to see, it's are they safe to drive? for example. And one of the tools we've got that we talked about was a questionnaire like the Epworth Sleepiness Course, a self-reported scale of do people feel sleepy in particular situations? And transport drivers, or if your license is depending on it, you're going to say, no, I don't feel sleepy in any of those situations. So that's tough. If I'm trying to measure sleepiness and the main sort of questions when I'm trying to ask people about symptoms, it comes back as, no, I don't have any symptoms. I don't then have a great sort of other tests to to go to beyond that. And at the other end of the scale with the Epworth sleepiness score, you know, you and I have each seen that clinical picture where someone scores 24 out of 24. I'm maximally yeah. sleepy in every single situation all the time. All yeah. the time. Yeah. And really that's reflection of the underlying sleepiness Mm. and much more it's a reflection of distress response to symptoms and how impactful they are yes I, i agree with that so it does make it a challenging area to work in and how do we then assess someone's safety for driving for operating heavy equipment and it's challenging But the good news is, so there's great research happening in Australia. So Monash University, together with the Walcock Institute and Flinders, are involved in research looking at some of these safety measures, particularly around sleepiness, via the alertness CRC mm. And hopefully the types of things we'll have in the future is some sort of biomarker like a roadside test. At the minute we've got roadside tests for alcohol, but a roadside test potentially for sleepiness. Are you too sleepy to be driving? Mm, yeah. Whereas at the minute, we don't really have great yeah. uh, tests for that.
2: Oh, that'll definitely come in, in, our, in our lifetime as, as clinicians. Yeah.
1: So if you're looking for more information on me- the measurement of sleepiness, I'll put some of the links to David Plant's research in the show notes.
2: So what's your clinical tip of the month, Dave?
1: So a tip that's really relevant to my clinical practice in measuring sleepiness and managing people with sleepiness is for clinicians to just acknowledge uncertainty. I reckon far too often as clinicians, if we're not certain about something, we don't admit that. Mm -hmm. We're not open with the people that we're treating and saying, you know what, there are some things we're good at and we can measure really carefully and there are other things we're not so good at and this is definitely an area where the measurement isn't perfect mm-hmm. and I think we just got to be honest about that and say look happy to support you there's clear there's a problem here we've done some measurement it shows a trend in this direction and I think that's what's going on but you know that's having that sort of way of thinking about it as a having a working framework or a working diagnosis rather than telling someone with absolute certainty right. You definitely have this. My testing shows this is what you absolutely have. Mm. It's also an area where I don't want to give people a label or an incorrect label that sticks. So if you label someone with a disorder of sleepiness that yeah. sticks and you're sort of implying you've got a lifelong condition that's not going to get better, that's going to have significant impacts on mm. you going forward, I want to be pretty cautious about that, mm. particularly if my testing is not perfect.
2: It's hard though, isn't it? Because you people have gone to a lot of different places people to get to you and there's a lot of expectation yeah, you're absolutely. a you know a credentialed experienced sleep physician so they would be expecting that they don't want to you know, there's an expectancy effect they don't want to hear that oh we're not sure we don't have really good measures yet People will be really surprised by that and that, disappointed. That's a good, that's a good mm. point.
1: And it is a tricky balance, I reckon, mm. between not trying to you know, fool people, yeah. that there's greater certainty than what there is, yeah. and being open and honest with people, but also reassuring them that, you know what, there's a little bit of uncertainty on the diagnostic side, mm. but these are the symptoms you've got, and we're going to work together yeah. to manage them.
2: And I think it's not only honesty, but just the reality of that sometimes things do change over time. Like, they've do, don't they, symptoms can manifest as different things at different times over the course of say with an idiopathic hypersomnia or a narcolepsy disorder it might not have been that when they got tested 20 years ago it might not the markers weren't there it doesn't, yeah. doesn't mean that physician was wrong. Absolutely,
1: because a couple yeah. of nice papers, one out of France and one out of the US, showing if you repeat a multiple sleep latency test five years down the track, mm. in people that look like narcolepsy type 2 or idiopathic hypersomnia up front, mm. about two thirds of them actually change diagnostic category yeah. five years down the track, yeah. which is why we have got to
2: be extra cautious if yeah. that's, a, that's the
1: research. So Moira, what's your pick of the month?
2: Well, what I wanted to talk about was this uh, a paper that was in sleep medicine in June 2018, and it was an Australian group of researchers led by Robert Adams. It was from taking data from our 2016 National Sleep Health Foundation study. Mm-hmm. And there's been a number of papers. It's been great fodder. You know, this yeah. bit of research from, I think we just do the, these research, about a thousand people randomly selected telephone interview over the, you know, every couple of years or so. And it just generates a lot of different papers. And this group has done a great job. And what, what this one that was, it's called Sociodemographic and Behavioral Correlates of Social Jet Lag in Australian Adults. What I wanted to mention about that, and we've got the link to it in the show notes, It's not, I mean, it's great, beautiful, beautiful research. What was interesting was the media interest in it. Like, unbelievable. Un, un, unexpected and unprecedented media interest, mm-hmm. particularly because of the word social jet lag, I yeah. think, because people think, wow, what's that? That's new. And my little anecdote is that I was on tv news and i don't like tv at all like i really and so she was wanting to do an interview around this social jet lag and i was thinking well it's not really a thing <laughs> yeah. just, I, i've been in the field for 20 years and i don't i it's not in my textbooks <laughs> social jet lag but it's just a good headline grabbing thing it's really around looking at sleep deprivation or people who aren't sleeping enough and got a mismatch to their sleep and their wake schedule and the daytime correlates of that mimic jet lag so uh, the author Bob Adams and other people who have used this title before it's just a nice way it's an eloquent way of getting the general public to understand how what it feels like yeah. what jet you know it's like because everyone understands what jet lag feels like and so this is jet lag all the
1: time nothing yeah. to do with jets yeah, it, it grates as, as a you know if you think about the physiology it just it because it's not quite yeah, right yes but if you think about the the functional outcome or how it feels
2: yeah it makes sense you know, <laughs> so I felt like a real fool with this journalist I was saying oh' she was saying what is it and I said oh, oh and I was just referring to My phone from a text from him (laughs) because I said I'm being interviewed tomorrow. What is it exactly? To me, it's not really a thing. I'm just checking. Is it a thing? And I'm reading out his words. I thought, gee, she must have thought this is not an. I asked for an expert, (laughs) and they sent me this. I'm sure sure you did a good job. So anyway, that's a little funny anecdote for my pick of the month. What's your pick of the month? So it's a book
1: another book. And this one's not so much about sleep, but it's something that's relevant to healthcare. So the book's called Dope Sick by Beth Macy. And it's a story about prescription opiate medications in the United States. And that whole story of how it began and how the United States got to where they are at the moment in just a terrible situation Hmm. with overuse and misuse of prescription opiate medications and a large proportion of the population misusing opiate mm. medication. And yeah, very interesting insights into how that evolved and. Scary insights into how commercial interests and drug company interests in selling products then got health professionals involved and health professionals helped sort of fuel the use of the medication. So, yeah, I think a lot for us to learn about that and Mm. to learn about how things can go poorly if we're not sort of careful about what we do.
2: All right. So a cautionary tale.
1: A cautionary tale. Mm. And, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well written and it's a major health issue in the United States. And in Australia, less in Australia, thankfully, but nice insights into how we've gotten there and potentially ways to avoid getting there with other topics in the future.
2: Mm. Oh, good. Excellent. Good pick. So I guess we can talk about the coming up, all the stuff coming up and particularly the next episode.
1: Yeah. So for the next episode, which will be episode 35, we're getting up to three years of-
2: (gasps) I know. It's three years in November that we've been doing this. Yeah.
1: So it'll be episode 35. And so we're going to talk about sleeping tablets or sleeping pills as we'll call it. And I'm going to interview Wallace Mendelson. So Wallace was a professor of psychiatry and clinical pharmacology at the University of Chicago. And he's just actually updated his book on sleeping pills. So perfect time to talk to him about that. And his book is a really nice sort of book, good messaging and good communication about the role of sleeping tablets and the pros and cons of Different medications. Excellent. Look forward to it. So thanks for listening to this episode and thanks again for your help, Moira. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And if you've got any suggestions for topics or want to send us any comments, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au, send us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast via any of the podcast apps or our sleep talk app in the iTunes store.